Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would answer some of the Upper Tier Patron emails. This first one is from Upper Tier Patron Vanessa from Los Angeles. They write, How do you restore trust in a relationship when your partner has a pattern of lying? How do you restore trust in a relationship when, a, when your partner has a pattern of lying? First off, I really like this question because it's very short. <laughs> People email in very long emails, and sometimes that's nice, but... Usually it means that it's harder for me to actually sift through. But this is a very concise question. So I've talked about this a lot, but I thought I would take some time and actually write out some steps. So step one is you have to stop the lying or the cheat. I'm going to apply this to cheating as well because I think these are common issues in, in therapy. So how do you restore trust in a relationship when your partner has a pattern of lying or cheating? So the first thing is, is the partner who has a pattern of lying has to stop. They have to stop lying. They have to stop cheating. How do you do that? Well, therapy is usually the answer because if they weren't already able to gain self-awareness on their own, they probably need help. They probably have trauma that leads to the lying. They probably have a habit that needs to be changed. They, they probably lack a lot of self-awareness. They're probably running from a lot of things. They probably don't know their own triggers for lying. People don't usually lie because they're trying to get away with something. Psychopaths do for sure, but the vast majority of people are not psychopathic, and those people who are lying are doing so often out of desperation or trauma or defense mechanism or something. It's usually not functional to their life. It doesn't usually enhance their life to lie and to cheat um, others. So we have to have that person stop because... In order to recover, you have to stop the the bleeding, right? You have to, you know, put a bandage over the wound. And if if the wound keeps being reopened by continued lying and cheating, then you're not going to be able to gain any kind of trust. Why would you trust? And here's the thing, people: trust. Uh, people say, like, how do I how do I trust my partner when they lie to me all the time? You would be delusional to trust someone who lies to you all the time. That's the point of trust. Trust is something that you build over time. Trust is something that is evidence-based. I don't walk up to someone on the street and say, I trust you. No, I don't know who that person is. I don't know how they're going to treat me. I trust my wife because I've been with her for years and she has treated me in an extremely consistent way and doesn't lie to me and doesn't cheat on me. I trust her when she tells me things because she has proven herself over years and years and years through various different ups and downs that I can trust her. So when you're trying to gain trust back from someone, there has to be a long period of time when there is no lying or cheating. And it takes a long time. And this is the thing that I always say that uh, research shows surprises those people who lie and cheat. They will often be extremely surprised when their partner doesn't uh, trust them after a few months of good behavior. If you've been with someone for 10 years and there's been 10 years of lying and cheating and three months of good behavior, you would be stupid to trust that person. Because a good predictor of the future is the past. And if you have lied and cheated in the past, then it's pretty it's a pretty good likelihood you're going to do it in the future. So the first thing that needs to happen in order to build trust back up is that the person has to stop lying and cheating. That just has to stop. The second thing is you want to conceptualize the lying or the cheating. Both partners need to understand why that person is lying and cheating. This is very important. And again, the common... Uh, uh, internet conceptualization is they're malignant narcissist or they're psychopath or sociopath. And certainly that's possible, but it's not usually the reason. Usually it's it's much more complicated than that, much less um, of a simple answer. You know, because the sociopath label is just like, well, they're evil. That's a, Whenever you're on the internet and you just hear the, uh, the term malignant narcissist or sociopath, usually what people are referring to, they're just using a, a psychology term for the, for the concept of evil. That person is evil. They are out to harm other people. They have no conscience. They don't care. They harm others and don't care. And certainly those individuals exist, but they're extremely rare. There's a possibility you will never come across a psychopath, a true psychopath, your entire life. They're pretty rare. Plus, their lives are usually train wrecks, and so you can detect them from a mile away. They're often in prison, by the way, or their lives are so dysfunctional that you would detect the dysfunction 
that their psychopathy produces way before you interact with how they will try to con you out of something. But anyway, it's important. Step two is to conceptualize the lying or the cheating. Both partners need to understand why the liar or the cheater is doing what they're doing. The cheater needs to understand why they're doing it, what kind of defenses are kicking in, and the cheated on person, the lying to person needs to understand why this happens. Why do you need to know that? Well, because it helps, right? It helps to gain compassion. It helps to give a path forward for the cheated on or the lied to partner. They, when they conceptualize it, they're like, oh, okay, the, my partner isn't evil. They just have a problem, which is almost always the case. I've, I've never come across someone who cheated just because they didn't care. Uh, cheaters are suffering. Usually people who are lying and cheating are suffering greatly, and their lying and cheating is just a symptom of that. doesn't excuse it at, at all, for sure, but understanding that and conceptualizing that is very important to building trust because then you know the cheated on partner can say, there's a path forward. I don't just have to yell at my partner to not do it again. There's a, we have a foundation as to why this is happening and we can treat that foundation or manage it. A third step is that the, cheated or, the cheater or the liar has to take responsibility. This is incredibly important that the person has to say, I did something wrong and there's no excuse. I have reasons. Like someone might say, well, I cheated on my husband because our relationship had been really distant and cold for a long time. And that's why I cheated. But it is not okay that I cheated. It was wrong. I should have broken up with my partner. I should have restrained myself. Um, I understand why I did it, but it, but it, it's no excuse. Uh, two wrongs don't make a right, especially when it's like, oh, well, we've been distant for a while, and that's why I cheated. That's not, a, that's not an excuse. That, that's in my, you know, the therapy office often is devoid of morality, and I feel like that is a problem, and I feel like it's bad PR for our, um, for our business. And, and of course, we do involve our morals in the therapy office, meaning that therapists absolutely do think and enact or propagate their morals and infuse their morals in what they talk about with clients. For example, when it comes to conversion therapy, when conversion therapy for LGBTQ people trying to convert them to be straight or cis or whatever. And we have decided as a field and legally as well, that that is immoral. Even if a client wants to change, we have decided that that is not okay. Now, we will come up with uh, scientific reasons as to why we, we don't do that, because we believe that that's just the way people are. And there's no evidence to say that changing them will improve their life or anything. But it is a moral choice. You know, a lot of people come into therapy asking for various different things, and we don't necessarily, uh, you know, push back on that. But Anyway, my point is, is that when it comes to people lying and cheating other people, it's important that we understand that that's immoral and that we talk about that if it's confusing to our clients. Now, some clients will absolutely know, I cheated on my partner and I know that's wrong and da 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 da. But some people, they have a hard time with it. You know, they'll, they'll go in denial, they'll make excuses, they'll justify it, and they'll say things like, you know, I've, I've had clients who have, you know, said to me, I'm I'm currently cheating on my husband and it's because you know we've just been really distant for a long time. And what I'll say is I sympathize with the fact that you've been lonely for a long time. But that doesn't justify you lying ongoing and deceiving your partner and harming your partner to this extent. That's not an excuse and 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 I'll just say that to my clients. I'll just say, you know, a, a an important step to to uh, you improving your life is having integrity, and I'll even use that word, particularly with men. I'll say, uh, do you? And, and it's it's not just me beating them over the head with it. Um, some of my trainees will interpret it that way. It's just like, oh, you're just supposed to let people have it. No, <laughs> no. My m me and my clients have very good relationships. I spend a lot of time getting to know their situation, having an affinity between the two of us, having an alliance. And I just start introducing questions like, okay, you're telling me that you're cheating on your, on your wife or husband right now because you've been really distant for a long time, and I'm getting the impression that you feel like it's justified. Is that true? So 
when I ask that question, it's sort of implied that I'm questioning whether or not it's justified. And then we begin to have that conversation. But anyway, so the cheater or the liar needs to take responsibility. It is my fault that I'm doing it. Two wrongs do not make a right. Now, there are situations, rare situations, where you could say it is justified. Like if you're being routinely high in a high control relationship and being abused physically and you're just looking for some oasis in the desert of emotions and you find someone that will cuddle with you occasionally and in that situation i think a lot of people morally would say that that's not necessarily a bad thing because your partner is a monster but that's not usually what we're looking at step four is repair and this is the main phase of building trust back is and I've talked about this before, but to to reiterate, the cheated on or lied to par- partner will have upwelling of hurt and pain that will happen for the rest of their life, probably. And as they have that upwelling, so for a cheated on partner, they might see their partner uh, texting someone and it triggers them because the, the cheating involved texting or lied to partner might um, you know, you're saying, you know, are you going to be there at five o'clock? And then your spouse shows up at like five, you know, five fifteen, And during those 15 minutes, it triggers that old feeling of being lied to. And you, the initial feeling is an attachment, fear of abandonment and being harmed by others. And then that feeling gets turned into anger and hostility and that kind of thing. So that the cheated on lied to partner needs to communicate that from the foundational level of telling their partner, hey, so when you didn't show up, I was very upset. And I think underneath all that upsetness and that anger was a lot of fear that I was going to lose you. And I have to say on a scale from one to 10, I was like a seven. I was pretty triggered when you didn't show up on time. And I know that it's not exactly rational, but all the lying that you did before has really hurt me and you triggered that by not showing up on time or something or you triggered me when you were texting and not really showing me what you were texting the cheated the cheating partner or the lying partner needs to completely apologize in that moment completely fully every single time it happens and this is something that I will work with clients on quite extensively and the the cheated the cheating partner lying partner needs to say needs to stop in their tracks and say thank you for telling me Thank you for communicating in a nice way. You have every reason to be upset. I'm sorry that I did that to you. I'm sorry that I triggered you. I should have known better. Uh, I want to reassure you that I didn't intend to show up late. I'm not lying to you. I'm not cheating on you. You're just going to have to trust me on that. But I understand why you would distrust me in this moment. Um, And so the two of them would attend to the attachment wound in the victim. This is something that a lot of couples really struggle with because there's so many barriers to this. The person who has the upwelling of emotions and trigger will often come at the other person with hostility instead of starting with the foundational primary feelings of hurt. So it's very hard for people to do that. And and because your partner uh, uh, betrayed you, and so you don't trust that person. So it's you're in a catch-22 in order to recover from the mist and the incursion to the trust, you have to communicate in a very primary emotion way. But in order to do that, you have to trust them. But in order to trust them, you have to go through this process that you haven't gone through yet. And so it takes a lot for that person. It also takes a lot from the cheating partner and the lying partner to be able to withstand the frequent upwelling of emotion that happens in their partner. Uh, They have to apologize all the time and they have to be mature and differentiated enough to take it and to say to stop in their tracks and and not get defensive about it because to be defensive is to not repair and to not recover and a lot of the cheating lying people will feel like hey i already apologize it's um, it's universal if not almost it's almost universal if not universal that the cheating lying people will say i've already apologized to you for this how many times do you have to apologize and if i'm there i'll say Literally the rest of your life, you will have to apologize for this. That is the consequence of lying and cheating. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it's the reality of humans. It, so your your partner having upwelling a feeling is not the weird one. You're the weird one for thinking that you could do what you did and apologize a handful of times and have it go away. You're the weird one. Now, you are not 
culturally weird because our culture believes that that's true. The culture would believe that your partner, the victim, is dwelling on the past. Not true. We are attachment creatures. We highly depend on attachments. And when we have an incursion on that trust, it is natural to have a lot of ongoing feelings about that. So now this can take a lot of work and um, I might have you know, months of therapy with a couple going through this process before the cheating lying partner halfway kind of is on board with that perspective. And the fifth step is to repeat this process for years. Eventually, time will show that you can trust this person, and you'll, but you'll never really trust them because they did do something wrong to you in the past. But you could get, you know, 95, 99% there. Now, for some of you out there, you might be listening, particularly you up to your patron, Vanessa, uh, from Los Angeles, that that sounds depressing. It takes a long time. It, it depends on a lot of things. You've got to get your partner into therapy, probably. You've got to get your partner to understand. You've got to get your partner to, a, you know, the lying, because you know, you're asking, how do I restore trust in a relationship when your partner has a pattern of lying? So, Vanessa, I don't know if your partner has a pattern of lying, but there's so many things that have to happen. Your partner needs to stop lying. The two of you need to conceptualize why your partner is lying, which is complicated. There's a very complicated investigation, often with a therapist who is experienced in personality assessment and trauma assessment, childhood trauma assessment, that can actually conceptualize something in a way that makes sense to you. That That's very hard. The partner has to take responsibility for lying. Then you have to have this repair phase that goes on potentially the rest of your relationship. When you have an upwelling feeling, you communicate it well, they fully apologize. Um, maybe even there's some level of openness from the cheating lying person where they give passwords to their accounts so that you can check on things. So there's uh, there's a lot that has to happen, and you have to wait for potentially months, years to begin to trust your partner again. And that's just the reality. And what society will say is just get over it, stop dwelling in the past. Or just break up with him. That's another thing that you'll hear people say, oh, just, you know, once a cheater, always a cheater, just break up. You're certainly, you know, within your rights to break up for sure. But if everyone who had a trust incursion broke up with someone, there would be, you know, like 10% of the relationships would exist today. <laughs> Meaning that things, bad things happen sometimes, particularly in long-term relationships. And often people will... will I, I would say 95% of the time, if not more than that, clinically, when I have experienced cheating or lying, significant lying in a relationship, the the couple decides to stay together afterwards because there's too much there to salvage. You know, they really want to salvage their relationship. Will they always stay together for, you know, for a long time? No, but that's usually the, the impulse in the beginning. All right, let's go into another email. All right, this next email is from upper tier patron Megan from Yelm. Good old Yelm in Washington here. Uh, why are some people interrupted or talked over more than others? Something I've noticed throughout my adulthood is that I often get talked over, especially in groups. I brought this up to a therapist in the past who thought the reason might be that I present as hyper-feminine and that we live in a sexist society. I was curious as to what your thoughts might be on why certain people are talked over more than others. End of email. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with your therapist that sexism is a good candidate. It's at least one of the factors in, in all likelihood. It's a well-known phenomenon that women, and perhaps as you're saying, hyper, you know, women that present as hyper-feminine are more likely to be interrupted, particularly in groups. And it's based on this notion that women should be seen, not heard, maybe not even seen to some extent that they don't know things, and we've studied this up and down, that uh, men, that men, tall men wearing a suit, tall white men wearing a suit and looking handsome are assumed to be good leaders, even though they might not be. They're assumed to be smart and that they know what they're doing. And anyone, you know, the further you get away from that, the more likelihood people are just going to have a natural bias, regardless of what gender they are themselves, that the person doesn't have leadership skills, doesn't know what they're talking about, shouldn't be listened to, has bad ideas. They might even have disdain for 
uh, women speaking up. There might, you know, there's misogyny. People have an ingrained misogyny, hatred towards women. It's just like uh, this knee-jerk reaction of just like, how dare she talk so much? How dare she, uh, you know, assert herself? And these are well-known, scientifically um, measured biases that people have. And what that can result in is you just notice, I'm getting interrupted a lot more than other people are. Um, So, yeah, there are other isms as well. Classism also is a thing. If someone presents as as higher class, they're much more likely to be listened to than if someone presents as lower class. So you you might want to think about that. I don't know what the solution is, honestly. So you're just saying, you know, why? But it's just another thing to think about. Also, other things that I have observed in terms of people interrupting is the way people talk. So some people have a slow cadence to the way they talk and are more prone to being interrupted because they have more pauses in between what they're saying. And people might actually not even think they're interrupting when they are because there's a long pause that you are presenting that feels like it's supposed to be filled with someone else saying something. So that's another thing. I don't know if that's true for you, Megan. Another is that if you're really nice, regardless of gender or class, people who are really nice in a kind of high-tense group situation might get stomped on. So that's just another thing to think about. Also, awkwardness or timidity is something that I've seen people will get interrupted on. If someone comes across as awkward, it can be distressing, or if someone is interpreted as being awkward, I guess is a better way of putting it, then other people have this compulsion to shut that person down because they just don't want to hear that person talk because it's anxiety provoking to hear an awkward person talk, if that makes any sense, or a timid person. Um, Sometimes people think they're even kind of saving you from yourself by interrupting because you're timid and they're trying to you know save you from your own fear. I don't know. There are other reasons as to why someone would be interrupted more often than others. All right, this next question is from upper tier patron Katie from California. She writes, "What are your thoughts about an emotionally unsupportive, unempathetic friend who may love you but at the same time resent something about you and will attack you when triggered? At what point do friendships become too toxic to remain keepers?" How often have you seen friends seek counseling together? End of email. We'll answer the last question first. I see friends seeking counseling together extremely rarely. Um, I'm trying to imagine a time when I actually did that. Maybe early career when I worked a lot with teenagers, they would bring in their friends sometimes. But it's certainly uh, an option, and I think people should do it more often, particularly uh, friends who are really close and having some problems. Um, then you ask, at what point do friendships become too toxic to remain keepers? You know, it's a, a very personal choice that you have to make. Um, on one hand, every relationship has its ups and its downs. On the other hand, at some point, you just have to cut your losses and leave. So I don't know, Katie, I, I hope that you can, I mean, maybe one solution or or. Um, path towards wisdom is to have a lot of friends. Katie, I don't know if you have a lot of friends, close friends, but if you have a lot of friends who are close, it might, one, give you some contrast regarding like, is this relationship worth it? You know, the toxic one. And then you might leave or because you're getting your needs met through other other relationships. Or you might find that you can tolerate your occasionally toxic friend because you have other friends who will meet your needs. All right. This next question is from upper tier patron Jules. She writes, is it introversion that's causing me to be upset about the world opening back up? I'm an introvert. And when the quarantine for the pandemic happened, I was delighted because I didn't have to make any changes to my lifestyle because I already work and go to school remotely. Now that things are opening back up, I feel some kind of anger or upsetness from people out and about without and without masks. Is this just something that introverts will grapple with? End of email. Well, I don't really know, Jules. I'd have to see research, and I'm guessing there's going to be a lot that will come out in the next 10, 20 years about what happened over the past year, year and a half, two years. 
but um, it could be could be that it's common for introverts to feel some kind of fear about returning to normal and being forced to do things again. Um, there might have been some level of comfort being an introvert as the pandemic happened because you're not being asked to do things that are you know stepping out of your comfort zone. You might have even felt some kind of um, it's like a a doomsday prepper. And when a doomsday happens, they might just kind of feel a little satisfied, like, see, I told you, and introverts might have had some <laughs> some level of that. I don't know if that's your case, Jules, but you know, I could I could see that. I could also see as things start opening up, maybe possibly feeling envious of people leaving their house and having fun or freedom together. And there's some of that. But really, I think, Jules, the, the main thing that I would say is that I think it's normal to have feelings. All of us, I think, are going to have a, and have had a lot of feelings. And as things open back up, it it seems like we should be happy, uh, which is fine if you are. But I think there's the possibility of a lot of feelings happening. You know, we've been through a lot. For example, with me, when I go into public now, the, the other day, uh, so for for a couple months, I was fully vaccinated and wore masks whenever I left the house. And there was um, kind of a couple weeks where it was pretty clear that everyone in Seattle or the vast majority of people in Seattle were vaccinated. And but we were still wearing masks. But some places you would see people not wearing masks and. I was like, oh, I don't know if I really like that. But that was kind of the recommendation at the time anyway, that it, it it was okay not to wear a mask. But I still wore a mask and didn't like it when people weren't wearing masks because I just felt, I don't know, just felt like just wear a mask, dude. It it just doesn't take a lot of effort. And until we're fully out of the woods, it's all just make sure we're wearing our mask. But then one day I was going into the hardware store and I had forgotten I didn't have a mask on. I walk into the hardware store, no mask. I don't have a mask on. <laughs> and I'm in the store and I'm like, oh my God, I don't have a mask on. And I look around and I notice some of the workers also don't have masks on. And I'm just frozen there. And I'm thinking, well, okay, so they're not wearing a mask. And then I look at some other customers and you know, about half the customer, maybe a quarter of the customers weren't wearing a mask as well. And I, I'm pretty up to date on the science and listen to science podcasts about this. And it was a huge hardware store, you know, like a Lowe's hardware with lots of ventilation, assuming. And I just thought, well, you know, the chances of getting it, and even if I did get it, my immune system would fight it off. And even if it didn't, it's probably just going to be a nasty flu and I won't be hospitalized because that's the vast majority of people there fully vaccinated with Pfizer and da-da-da. So I'm sitting there just thinking, what do I do? Do I... Do I go back out to my car? It wasn't that much of a big deal to go back out to my car, but I just thought, well, I'm already in here and other people aren't wearing masks, so I guess I just won't wear a mask. And I walked around the store and I just felt completely uh, naked. Um, so then I started to wear a mask sometimes, but not other times. And my wife, she's more comfortable in a mask. So when I was with her, I'd be more likely to wear a mask, but sometimes I wouldn't. Like sometimes we'd go to the store and she'd be wearing a mask and I wouldn't. <laughs> and it's like, what's going on there? Uh, so uh, it's been kind of, you know, we've been in this zone lately where it, it's sort of half and half. And uh, but even then, even though I have walked around probably half the time in places without a mask, when I see someone without a mask, even if I'm also not wearing a mask, I feel a little judgy towards that person. <laughs> That doesn't make any sense, right, Jules? We can have all sorts of irrational feelings as we come out of the pandemic. And, you know, because we've been dealing with an extremely irrational situation. And we're going to have all sorts of feelings. We're going to have joy. We're going to have fear. We're going to have anger. We're going to get judgy. We're going to feel deeply, deeply afraid. I mean, that's the other thing for me is occasionally I'll just be walking around and it'll just hit me again that the pandemic is real and that the virus is real and has killed so many people. And I will just have this intense fear. What was, where was I? Someone sneezed. Oh yeah. I was uh, around some people and uh, this guy, he turned his face and he just, he, he turned away from me and he sneezed. And I was, <gasps> I just thought, you know, 
does he have it? Am I going to die now? And, and it was really acute and I skedaddled. So, um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of all over the map and I, I think that that's normal. So for you, Jules, to, regardless of your introvert nature, to feel some kind of anger or upsetness when seeing people out and about and particularly without masks, I think is, is extremely normal. And I don't know if it's necessarily um, – the only you would know, Jules, if it was connected somehow to your introversion, really. Um, but regardless, I, I, think it's, I think it's very normal. And I think we all just have to take care of ourselves during this time. You know, I, I think there's a temptation to say, well, we're out of the woods. Everyone celebrate instead of, well, things are changing and we're going to have emotions – some of them are going to be joy and some of them not. So let's all just, you know, take care of ourselves as we go through this. All right, let's take a break. We'll get back more up to your patron emails. All right, we're back from the break. Um, just a little side note, if people can become annual patrons, that would be great. Uh, we had a, a Patreon had a little bit of a glitch where annual patrons weren't having access. So if you're having trouble with it, make sure that you email Patreon about that or us. Um, we can actually email Patreon, Patreon ourselves. Um, but we're asking people to become annual patrons because it helps us with our planning a great deal, actually. And you get a discount. It's a win-win. You get a discount, and it helps us with our planning. And just to do some OPP, some old patron praise, we are today going to highlight those patrons who became patrons all the way back in October of 2017 and have stayed patrons this entire time. We have Jennifer from Milwaukee, Oregon. Did you? I did not know there was a Milwaukee, Oregon. But Jennifer is from there, and uh, she is a deserving listener. We have Sarita from New Jersey. We have Killian from God knows where. We have Jennifer Sampson, my boss <laughs> at the university from Tacoma, Washington. Uh, she, I guess, became a patron all the way back uh, four years ago. Uh, so thanks to my my boss, Jennifer. We got James from Illinois, and we got Julie from Sirenchester from Great Britain. <laughs> so thank you, Jennifer, Sarita, Killian, Jennifer, James, and Julie. A lot of J's in there for being patrons all of this time. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, another reminder that if you want to send us any kind of gifts or cards for our 13th anniversary, you can send it to 10002, that's three zeros, 10002, Aurora Avenue North, Suite 36, number 214, Seattle, Washington, 98133-9334. That's Aurora as in Aurora Borealis. All right, let's get on to another question. All right, this next email is from upper tier patron Alyssa from Boston. She writes, Lately, I've been seeing this boy as friends for like eight months, and it's turned into a friends with benefits situation. We both stated we like each other, but he doesn't want to put the monogamous label on it, especially because he plans to move soon. I was wondering what the attachment styles people usually have in these relationships how they are navigated as an anxious, preoccupied style, which I am, according to my therapist, and also if there's research about if these situations have a good chance of turning into more. End of email. Okay, so what are we looking at here, Alyssa? You're telling me that you are preoccupied attachment, which means that you are scared of abandonment. You uh, might tend to seek relationships as a way of regulating your emotions or trying to regulate your emotions. You have a hard time being by yourself. You are really wanting security very frequently. You think about it a lot. You have a hard time with amb ambiguous relationships and might even kind of put yourself down in, in times like that. Hard to know if that's your situation, Alyssa. You could talk to your therapist about that. But that's what you're telling me. You're preoccupied. And you're in a relationship with this guy for eight months, and it's your friends, but it turned into friends with benefits, and you both state you like each other, but he doesn't want to put the monogamous label on it, especially because he plans to move soon. Okay. So you're saying what sort of attachment styles might be involved in the situation, meaning what his attachment style is? Well, there's zero. I don't have any information, but you know, the fact that he is saying he doesn't want a monogamous label with you and is in a friends with benefits situation with you and 
you know, he might be moving soon. There's, uh, it, you know, a lot of people might say that he is avoidant attachment, but there's no way of knowing that he could be secure, he could be avoidant, he could be preoccupied, he could be disorganized. There's nothing inherent in their narrative here of any attachment style. Um, so I don't know. You also ask, how do you navigate? Well, the question is, what do you want? You know, you're, you know, how do I, you're asking me, you know, how do I navigate the situation as an anxious, preoccupied person? Well, the key is, is to really, really, really spend time on what you want, not what he wants, but what you want and what you need. Preoccupied people tend to put their own needs on the back burner. They're on the burner, they're on the stove, but they're on the back burner. They're definitely there, and they will definitely crop up and, you know, come out as, you know, I guess the analogy would be you you put your needs on the back burner, you forget about them, and then they start to burn, and when they start to catch on fire, then you start screaming. <laughs> so your needs are there as a preoccupied person, but uh, you, you ignore them for too long. So it's very important that you know what you want. So, Alyssa, do you want to be in a friends with benefits situation with him that he does not want a monogamous uh, relationship with you, meaning that he wants to be with other people. So one of the things that I have worked on with clients who are in your situation, Alyssa, is that they people in your position are prone to fantasy about a relationship where you might say to yourself, uh, well, but maybe things will work out. Or, uh, yeah, he says he doesn't want monogamy with me, but I think he does. Or he doesn't want to put a monogamous label on it, but, you know, maybe it will grow into that. And maybe it will. There's absolutely, maybe you'll be married together for the rest of your life someday. Uh, but as it stands, the way you describe it, he is saying that he likes you, that he likes being with you, that he likes you as a friend also, which is nice. You have a, you have a friend and you have a romantic sexual partner. But he doesn't want to be locked down with you. He doesn't want to be committed to you, meaning that he wants to possibly be available for other people and possibly breaking up completely when he decides to move. So do you want that relationship? Maybe you do. And as a preoccupied person, it might be kind of hard for you to to be in a relationship like that because of the fear of abandonment that will constantly be triggered as he is not wanting to kind of he doesn't want a secure relationship not he doesn't want a committed relationship and the way it stands it sounds like at any time he could leave because he you know he's been very clear with you he doesn't want a monogamous label he plans on moving soon so uh, i'm i'm guessing what he's communicating who knows but it wouldn't be i wouldn't be surprised if he's actually trying to communicate to you look this could end at any time so this is just a temporary thing and and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But you have to ask yourself, Alyssa, is that what I want? Is that ultimately what what I want? Or am I am I seeking a fantasy? Am I seeking a, a elusive um, false oasis on the on the horizon? You also ask, uh, is there research of you say you know is there research about if these situations have a good chance of turning into more? So. I don't know. This would be a hard thing to research based on the narrative that you're saying. Uh, but this is not a good sign that you're asking me this question, honestly, <laughs> Alyssa. You're, you're asking me. You're like, okay, from it's implied, Alyssa, that you want a monogamous committed relationship with him, that you really like him, or that at least you, you want to try out what it's like. He's saying he doesn't want that. And then you're asking me is, you know, what's the research, what's the percentage likelihood that he, you're asking me as a scientist, what the percentage likelihood of him committing to you? That's essentially what you're asking, which is a fine question, but you really want to investigate why you're asking me that question to begin with. It, 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 there's signs here that you are hoping for something, which is fine, but you're not facing the fact that you don't have it and it and it might not ever happen. There's a good chance it will never happen. You're hoping for something. You're hoping for a commitment with him. You're hoping for a more involved relationship with him, which is fine. You can want that. There's, there's nothing wrong with wanting that. But there is something self-destructive about hoping for hope, <laughs> I guess. Um, now, maybe there is. 
you know, you can have a conversation with him and, and I would, but I would start with what you want and what you need. And you, you might find a situation where you're like, you know what? I really am looking for someone that is more interested in, in a monogamous relationship with me. And, um, that's what I deserve. That's what I, that's what makes me feel comfortable. That's what makes me feel safe. And so this relationship, although I like it, ultimately it's, it's not what I need. You know, this is like an appetizer as I head into the main meal. And so I need to put this aside and have the bus boy come over and take my plates away so that I can make room for the next meal. <laughs> or you might find that, you know what, you know, my preoccupied uh, knee-jerk reaction is to want to snag him because I, I, I feel anxious in ambiguous situations. But really, I don't want a committed relationship either. And I really like him. And even if this does only last for another few months, it's fine because um, I'm really enjoying it. And, and that's fine. You know? so, but you really have to investigate what you want and what you need. All right. This next email is from upper tier patron Courtney from Kentucky. She writes, I had a strong reaction to your episode on the Bo Burnham special. I most enjoyed hearing whether you guys thought it was funny or not. I just turned 27. Thanks for the cameo, by the way. But I had some friends who turned 30 during the height of the pandemic, and I felt it in my soul when that clock hit 12 during the Bo Burnham special. I know being 30 doesn't mean much, but it's hard to go to that phase in life where you're not quite young anymore and being old is coming up next, especially when so many of us can't buy homes because of the economy, are afraid to have kids because of global warming, and a lot of us have accepted that bad things will continue to happen all over the world every day. And somehow we just have to cope with that and keep doing stuff. Dr. Kirk, my favorite part was, all, was also that song, Funny Feeling. I was getting a snack in the kitchen while it played, and I ended up standing there sobbing into my popcorn. I hate that I understand exactly what he's singing about, but knowing that there are other people out there who experience the same thing, it's nice to know at least I'm not alone. Listening to Bo sing it or to your cover of, of the song both make me feel sad but better at the same time. Sensitive people unite. End of email. Yeah, thanks up to your patron Courtney from Kentucky. I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. Uh, let's go through this. Um, so the first thing you talk about is you know, turning 30 or about to turn 30, and similar to Bo, and that feeling of you're not quite young anymore and you're not, you're not quite old yet, but old is coming up. And yeah, I mean, throughout any phase of life, there are these moments of crises, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, where we recognize our finite nature on this planet and what we're supposed to have achieved or what we think we're supposed to have achieved. And a lot of people that I've, I find... So for people turning 30, a very common thing that I think happens, and I've talked about this before, where a lot of people will think they're a failure. I would guess that most 30-year-olds feel they're below average regarding their career, um, which obviously doesn't make mathematical sense because most 30-year-olds have at least a couple friends that are doing, quote-unquote, better than they are. And what they will compare this, themselves to them and or, or whatever sort of life goal, whether it's having a career that's going well or honing a house or having kids and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's there's a lot of comparing that I feel like 30-year-olds do. Because when you're in your 20s, you can say, well, you know, I'm in my 20s, and I have my whole life ahead of me, and I, I'm not expected to be um, an adult yet. But when you turn 30, there's this expectation like, well, you should have your S together by that point. The thing I'll say to that is, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> uh, looking back now, I consider 30 to essentially be you're just you're just beyond your teenage years. And if you don't have your stuff together, that's fine. And also this comparison to other people is just unhealthy, right? We all understand that. And this other thing that you say here is, especially when so many of us can't buy homes because of the economy, I see it, I hear a lot of young people, particularly on Reddit, complaining about the fact that they can't buy homes, which I find to be interesting. Because on one hand, 
I, I guess I get it because we all want a home, I guess. But, you know, owning a home doesn't solve your problems. You know, you, you add a lot of problems to your life when you own a home. Owning a, lot, owning a home doesn't mean you're suddenly happy and suddenly set for life. A lot of people buy a home and now they have this huge mortgage and they, if something goes wrong in the house, they have to fix it. And you're, not, you're no longer mobile. You're, you're no longer free. You're kind of locked in on something. When the economy tanks, because believe me, I owned a house when the uh, housing crisis happened in 2008, and that is not a pleasant situation to be in. So I'm not saying that uh, you should be happy renting an apartment, but I, I just find that a lot of younger people, they really focus on this buying a home thing. You can live in an apartment or... Maybe you live outside the city in a in a more cheaper place and live a completely happy life. Uh, there are plenty of people. Some of the happiest times of my entire life happened when I was crammed in, into a small apartment with five other dudes. So um, do not be envious of people that have homes because it's, it doesn't solve your problems. Um, and in some ways, as I will frequently talk about, uh, to the sort of ideal, the American ideal is to have a mansion on the hill, have a huge home. And it just means more isolation in a lot of ways, and which is more depression, more anxiety, more demoralization. So uh, now I'm not saying you're supposed to just be happy with your situation, but I just find that younger people, I, I don't know, but whenever I hear younger people complaining on Reddit about not owning a house, I'm just thinking, um, I'm just wondering where they're coming from exactly. Um, so there's that. The other thing is, is it's not like 20, 30 years ago, a lot of 30-year-olds were buying homes or could afford a home, particularly if you're trying to live in the city. Uh, so uh, now if you go back 50, 60 years, then yeah, a lot of people were buying homes. But even then, you know, uh, my parents didn't buy a house until they were they were about thirty years old, and and they they bought a house in the country, which was uh, Issaquah back then, and it was a it was a very humble ho- house. <laughs> um, so I I think that a lot of young people have this. Uh, they watch too much Dick Van Dyke or something, where they just think that everything was wonderful back in the old days or something. And, and it, it just wasn't, you, you, you guys, you young people today have a lot of things. Uh, there's a lot of things that you can say that your life, even economically is better. Um, so, uh, you know, just, uh, don't have past envy, <laughs> envy for the past. Cause I'm guessing that, you know, like if I asked my parents, would they have rather grown up in the 40s and 50s and 60s or would they rather have grown up today? I'm guessing my parents would say they would rather have grown up today because of all the interesting things that are happening and the technology and um, the options available and the mobility that people have. Anyway, I I don't know that for sure, but it's just one thing. The other thing you say is um, you're afraid to have kids because of global warming and a lot of us have accepted that bad things will continue to happen all all over the world every day. Yeah, I I agree with that one. I don't I don't think any and I think it would be particularly bad if you're young because there and I I was thinking about this the other day that with climate change and it's just getting worse and worse and it's not looking good and we talked about this during the Bo Burnham review episode with Berto that there's a chance that at the tail end of my life, I will start to see the real global impact of global warming and climate change. But I will die before it gets real bad. Or I'll die, or I'll be, I don't know. Anyway, I, but if you're 30 or younger, there's a good chance, a pretty good chance that in your lifetime, maybe by the time you're 50 or 60 years old, maybe even by the time you're 40, that you will experience the huge global consequences of climate change. Who, who knows? Hard to say. Um, and even if you are privileged enough to have money to survive through problems as the sea level rises and as famine increases and da-da-da, uh, the economic ripple effect over the globe might 
actually reach every single human on the planet, meaning that there might be a world 30 years from now in which everyone is struggling to make ends meet. Everyone is struggling to find work. You know, unemployment might skyrocket. Inflation might skyrocket. The ability to get um, easy food might be very difficult. Whole crops might completely die off, you know, like in the movie Interstellar, that kind of thing. Uh, it's it's hard to know, and hopefully that doesn't happen. But I was just thinking the other day that I, I sort of feel there's a chance that 500 years from now, they will look at my generation, Generation X, and say they were the last generation to reap the benefits of the industrial assault that has been uh, that has occurred on the planet and that everyone after generation you know the millennials were the first generation and particularly the generations after millennials were the first generations to really suffer from the uh, consequences of industrialization that had been going you know industrialization has been happening for a couple hundred years now so um and i was wondering now i hope that doesn't happen i hope that uh, we figure this out. Our uh, political figures band together that uh, we allocate money for infrastructure and for research to roll back the damage. Um, it's going to be hard. It's going to we're going to have to take a lot of sacrifices. But you know, like some of the more recent things that politicians are talking about saying that, you know, by 2030, we will do X, Y, and Z, or by 2040, we'll do X, Y, and Z. Whenever I hear that, number one, I think, well, another Republican or another politician, I should say, will come into office and just erase that whole thing. So even though you're saying that, it's like, who knows what the next politician is going to do and to dismantle what you're saying right now. The other thing I think is, too little, too late, pal. <laughs> like, we need to do stuff, to, we needed to do stuff uh, decades ago. So yeah, okay, by 2040, uh, it could be too late. Uh, so, or it already is too late to some extent. Anyway, so I get it, Courtney. I, I, when we listen to this song, and we also think of, and you also think about that part where Bo Burnham turns 30, and, and just kind of the, the, the tone of the entire Bo Burnham special had this, I don't know what to call it, but the depression or anger or the helplessness of your generation and how it's you know you didn't start the fire as as billy joel would say and yet you have to uh, deal with the flames and um and it's not just global warming it's bad things happening all the time y you might be in a generation of people that from the day you were born you knew what was happening you, you knew bad things that were happening around the world all the time uh, so that's another part of this that I don't think is going to bode well for your mental health and your outlook and your optimism and how you feel about how life is going. Yeah. And then you, you say, and somehow we just have to cope with all that bad stuff and just keep doing stuff, you know, just keep working, keep consuming, <laughs> keep having Halloween parties and, uh, uh, listening to podcasts. And it's like, why are we doing this. And I agree with that. I mean, I, I'm in the same boat with that. I I find that if I really think about it, which I do frequently, I think, why are we doing anything? Sometimes I think about, uh, well, incidentally, sometimes I think about this podcast. So one of the reasons why I do this podcast is I want an archive. And I remember Berto telling me this years ago, like maybe even the, the second year we were doing the podcast, he said, uh, we were just, I think I was asking him, what do you think about this podcast that we're doing? And he said, well, I think it's really great that you're creating this archive of material that will live forever. And I was thinking recently that we could have some kind of technology catastrophe, whether it's satellites creating a swarm of bullets in our um, you know, in orbit. So we have no more satellites and, and we don't have the ability to communicate across long distances or economies collapse and we can't um, afford to have the sort of internet infrastructure 
that we've had in the past or, or something like that. Anyway, I, I, or we literally cook ourselves in, from our own uh, uh, greenhouse gases and, and the entire e- uh, ecostructure collapses and, and we all die. And the only animals that survive are one, you know, we, we're creating essentially a, another mass extinction right now by our uh, pollution and and uh tearing down you know the forests but i was thinking what a bummer if the human race doesn't exist anymore and uh my archive of podcasts just are forgotten <laughs> i know that sounds stupid as i say it out loud but but somehow i i want it, it's sort of my legacy that i i guess i guess for artists they might feel this way they create a painting and they want it to endure they want people a hundred years from now to you know to enjoy that painting or to enjoy a song that they've written or to enjoy a forest that they planted for me it's this podcast i hope that a hundred years from now i don't know if people would enjoy this a hundred years from now but i have a a hope that at least it'll be helpful maybe even in a historical sense they'll just say like what was what were early psychology podcasts like anyway so but i was thinking about how uh, soon after i die this whole planet could have just massive problems and that'll never happen and i don't know i guess um that whole thing is just demoralizing so courtney i get it (laughs) there's a lot of things that i i get what you're talking about and sobbing into your popcorn as Bo Burnham sings, you know, about a, uh, a, a gift shop at the gun range, a mass, a mass shooting at the mall. Um, is that the line? Um, I, I get the funny feeling and similar to you, Courtney, that when Bo Burnham sang, sang that song, I felt heard. And that's, I think, one of the, when you really know you've heard a song, a great song, is when you feel like, even though people talk about the things that Bo Burnham is talking about, the way that he put it and the tone of the song just perfectly encapsulates how I feel, or just a part of it, and it seems like you can relate to that too, Courtney. And yeah, we're all in this together. It's like... I don't know that the analogy that I have is we're all on this ship and we're heading, we are heading, we're heading what looks to be, okay, here's the analogy. We're in a boat, big kind of cruise liner. And a lot of us are looking over the side ahead and it looks like a waterfall. We don't know how far it is ahead and we don't know how much of a drop off it is. Maybe it's only a few feet. Maybe it's a, a few miles. Who knows? And we're screaming at the captain and the the other people who are driving the boat and they're just not doing a thing. And so we're all, we all get these little, we all get spoons out and we're trying to paddle the boat backwards, you know, away from the waterfall. But of course that doesn't do anything. So we get back up and we scream and we protest and the captain and all the other crew, they just, they're, they don't care. They're just heading. They're just, there's, you know, it's, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You're just hysterical. And then at a certain point, some of the people who are scared and screaming just throw their hands up and say, well, maybe I should just have a Mai Tai and hang out by the pool. Cause what's the point? <laughs> like we've been screaming for Years. I mean, Courtney, you're 27. I've, I'm 50. I've been screaming about this stuff since I was 15 years old, maybe younger. Because I've known it, maybe even since I was seven. I remember in the 70s, there's a fair amount of environmentalist uh, discussion happening in the 70s. And I've been screaming about it for a long time and worried about it for a long time and trying to do what I can, making podcasts about it, voting protesting, donating, recycling, trying to, you know, promote scientific ideas, trying to find out information, 
trying to reduce my carbon footprint, trying to talk with other people about it, trying to, you know, talk with the grassroots people about investing in solar or nuclear power or something, trying to understand these things. And I feel like I've I've done a lot from, from my side. Could I do more? I suppose so. But it amounts to just a spoonful of water as, you know, uh, triple turbines are pushing away at the water underneath the boat and we're heading over that thing. I don't know what's going to ha- what's going to happen to us. Who knows? And so sometimes I think you just cry by the pool while you're drinking a Mai Tai and trying to have a good time. All right. Well, that is it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. 